0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I'm Greg Sesek from the Pratt Library Programs Department. Thank you for coming tonight. Uh, If you haven't already, pick up a copy of Compass, our library newsletter, on the table in the back, uh, which talks about uh, library programs here in the Central Library and in the branches. Uh, If you'd like to sign up to have it mailed to your home, you can do that on the table in the back, or go to our website PrattLibrary.org and sign up to have it delivered to your email box if you choose. Uh, We're glad tonight to have John Rizzo with us. Uh, He had a 34-year career as a lawyer at the CIA, culminating with seven years as the agency's chief legal officer. In the post-9-11 era, he helped create and implement the full spectrum of aggressive counterterrorism operations against Al-Qaeda including the so-called Enhanced Interrogation Program and Lethal Strikes Against the Al-Qaeda Leadership. Since retiring from the CIA, he has served as senior counsel at a Washington, D.C. law firm and is a visiting scholar at the Hoover Institution. He is a graduate of Brown University and Washington University, George Washington University Law School. Thanks, John.
1: Well, it's very nice to be here. Um, as you may know, I was originally scheduled to uh, come on, fe- on uh, a couple of weeks ago, and snow interfered. So, I had done an interview with the Baltimore Sun a couple of days before that to hype the appearance. But, you know, as I learned often at CIA, things don't quite turn out as planned. So, I'm uh, delighted to be here, and I'm I'm uh, I'm honored you were, uh, you took the time to come on a cold night. Um what I what I uh, like to do in these uh, appearances and actually I've spoken actually spoken in in uh, uh public appearances even when I was at CIA the last few years because I thought it was important to get out there and try to be public and explain and put a human face on CIA uh and hopefully try to dispel some of the mis misconceptions um and what I find I've enjoyed the most in these kinds of forums is um the give and take with the audience, whether it be questions or comments. Uh I've certainly got a lot of questions and comments during this um book tour. So so I will um especially since we're a cozy group here, I'm going to limit my uh, remarks um uh to a few minutes really, and then uh and then open it up for um, whatever people have on their minds. Um, I don't know how many of you, uh, how much you know about the book. Um. One one of the questions I've been asked um, is uh, in media appearances is why I decided to write a book about my career. Um, two reasons really. First of all. Uh, there has been uh, a spate of of so called CIA insider memoirs in the past fifteen years or so um, before that, it was really an unknown quantity i mean don 't i 'm not entirely sure why CIA people who retired start writing books, but it happened about fifteen years ago and of course, former CIA directors write the mem- memoirs and uh, after I retired uh, First, I should say that I became, you know, late in my career, a public figure, notorious public figure in some quarters for the first time. So when I retired at the end of 2009, um, for the first time, I really had time to reflect on what I had done and what I had gone through. And it struck me that <clears throat> of all the CIA memoirs from former CIA people, the insider memoirs, none... None had covered the scope of years that I had been at CIA. I, I came in as a 28-year-old naive kid in 1976. I left much older and uh, hopefully a little wiser 34 years later at the end of 2009. And that really spanned uh, the modern history of CIA. Uh, I mean my modern history, before 1975, CIA was a total mystery, totally... Closed off to the outside world, more or less impervious to criticism or leaks I mean you know they had the, the public perception had this image of CIA but it was largely it had largely been operating in the dark and then in the you may recall in the mid seventies um there was a investigation first time into CIA misdeeds uh, led by a senator named Frank Church who was called the church committee uncovered all the CIA um, called Family Jewels, all the assassination plots in the fifties and sixties, the drug experiments, uh, mail openings of U.S. citizens during the Vietnam era—just a really, a really a panoply of, um, of uh, abuse. And I came in as part of the first reform movement for CIA to bring in new lawyers, different lawyers. So, so that's how I got started in this—in the first real expose of CIA activities. And I stayed for, as I say, thirty-four years as a lawyer. You know, I would hesitate to use fortunate, but I was there for virtually all of the all of the uh, controversies, crises, screw ups that the CIO was involved in in the ensuing thirty-four years. And Lord knows, we always seem to manage to get ourselves into one thing or another every every three or four years. So I, I thought that I thought that. Uh, that my career neatly fit the arc of the agency's uh, modern history. So that was one reason. The other reason was that, you know, no CIA lawyer had ever written a memoir. And I think I think the public, I, mean, I think anyone you would ask, would not normally associate CIA with lawyers or CIA with the law because of the image of CIA being this, you know, untrammeled, you know, rogue elephant, run amok without regard to law or, or morals or anything. Um, so I wanted to dispel that because, um, CIA, uh, you know, believe it or not, is actually, has more lawyers embedded in the fabric of everything it does. Uh, always has been, even when I joined the office, it was much smaller than, than it was when I left it. Um, and that and that cia people cia operatives analysts scientists uh do not do not engage in activities without checking every single step of the way with their with their lawyer uh so i thought that i mean i i you know as i say i'm sorry i know i don't think anyone's ever referred to cia lawyers in in uh, in any in any, um, uh, memoirs or or outside uh, analyses of CIA, so I thought by using me as sort of an uh, uh, example of how lawyers evolved and became increasingly influential, uh, that that might be an interesting if not unique uh, take on the uh, on the agency. So so those are the two primary reasons why I decided to embark on this book. I'd never obviously written a book before. I didn't know if I could write a book. Those of you who have not written books, it's actually I would recommend it to you. It was certainly an adventure for me. I thought I had I thought I had uh, become pretty um, <clears throat> inured to uh to uh the the vicissitudes of fate and uh, um but publishing a book uh writing a book and publishing it and getting an age and all of that, it's just been a fascinating experience for me. I'm not sure I'll ever do it again, but uh I'm glad I did it. Uh, the final thing I will say, uh, I would not have been approached by publishers to write a memoir of my career, it uh, not the fact that I became, as I say, I, I said earlier, a a a for the first time after twenty five years under the radar at CIA after nine eleven, I became a um, a public and in some quarters notorious public figure because of the role. I played, and it was a key role, no doubt about it, in the creation implementation of so-called enhanced interrogation techniques. My name came to the public attention. I had a uh, confirmation hearing that uh, was um, quite eventful. Uh, uh, Wound up uh, uh, withdrawing in the face of of, uh, certain certain defeat. So that marked and uh, defined, actually, consumed the last few years of my, um, of my career. So, obviously, that's a, that's a big part of the book. Although I, I, I'm hoping readers uh, not just focus on those years, which were momentous, uh, and the consequences of which we're living with still, but also in my 25 earlier years, where I try in a China book to to sort of to sort of buy, buy stories, because that's what it is. It's not a legal treatise. It's not it's not a it's not a, a uh, law review article. It's a it's a bunch of stories illustrating through me uh, the various controversies, and crises. CIA went through for all those years, and the way the pendulum political pendulum would swing. So I hope people read it and enjoy it uh, on that basis. So that's about all on my uh, on my blurb. I just I did uh, thirty four years of my career in what thir- ten minutes. So that that sounds about right. So I'm happy to open up for questions or uh, comments from anybody. Yes, sir. Uh, there seems to be a lot of back and forth in, in public dialogue about whether
0: enhanced interrogation techniques ever really produced useful intelligence or intelligence that was, you know. Actually, effective in preventing some particular attack. Maybe you talk about this in the book. I'm assuming you probably do. But is it possible for you to just, like, reel off a bunch of examples of sort of useful things or you know, intelligence that prevented attacks that you think were only obtained as a result of enhanced interrogation?
1: Well, okay, let me see if I can do this uh, concisely. I don't have any kicking time bomb scenarios at the enhanced interrogation thing because we got some factoid out of somebody and it. Prevented the attack. I don't think there ever was. Um, At the same time, the the program, which went on for six long years, uh, I was convinced, I mean, I was on the inside, I was there at the beginning, uh, I was convinced from the beginning, watching and observing the reactions, the observations of the career operations and analytical people at CIA, that the program was producing highly uh valuable intelligence you know that that would contribute to this whole matrix of connecting the dots remember that so um so I'm conv- you know I'm not an analyst but I was you know I, and I was looking I, I knew these people and I knew they you know they were not political people they were I was convinced because they were convinced that it was yielding valuable benefits and it was it was in some way connecting the dots uh, as I say, there were no spectacular uh, uh, Eureka moments. Um, now, I mean, it begs the question of whether, if we, if there hadn't been enhanced interrogation techniques, and whether we, you know, the same information could have been acquired from those detainees. I mean, as you as you probably know, FBI some FBI interrogators who were there at, at the beginning of it were convinced that they were making progress, and and these and these. Ex- you know these brutal techniques, and they were brutal, weren't necessary. Now I don't. Yeah, you know, honestly, I uh, t- say this in the book. I don't know. Maybe that's true. Maybe they could have gotten the same information or better information. But I mean, it's so important. I keep stressing this: is, is to consider the context of the time for the, when these techniques were put together. It was, a f- it was three months after nine eleven. Do you remember every I mean everyone assumed that it wasn't a question of if there would be another attack on the homeland, when it would be. Uh you remember know, you know, we had the anthrax bomb, uh, anthrax attacks, we had the shoe bomber bombing. And here we had a guy, our first CIA to capture his first high-level detainee, who, again, our professional people were convinced if there was going to be another attack, this guy knew about it, would know about it. And he was stonewalling. Uh... Maybe maybe the bureau, you know, could have elicited the same information from him. But how long would that have taken? And and you know, it's it's you know, it's just critical. to Remember, that the time was not one thing we had back then. At least we didn't think we had. So I mean, it's a long roundabout answer. But I do believe the 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 program was valuable. It yielded valuable intelligence. I mean, even after the. Even after the takedown of Bin Laden, the Obama administration, which has, you know, abolished the program called it torture, conceded. Senior Obama administration officials conceded that that the interrogation program played a role, not the key role, but a role in tracking down those couriers that ultimately led to Bin Laden. So, I mean, I I thought it was valuable then, based on my observation now, and I I still think I still think that. Sir I'm sure you
0: said it's valuable and valuable now, but wasn't doesn't that subject to United States citizens and our military in the same kind of enhanced interrogation? Once the U.S. gives permission, says
1: okay, you can do this, then the United States military take their around and are opposed to
0: this enhanced interrogation.
1: Yeah, I mean that's one of the many reasons why this is so vexing to many people, and I understand that. I mean as you as you uh probably know i suspect you do know you know the the jag the military lawyers were unanimous once this program started leaking out that that this was abhorrent that it shouldn't be done for the very reason you described i never served in the military so i you know and i you know i deeply respected those those views it's just that it's just it's just a and and in terms of the the quid pro quo once we once we start down this road what's to prevent other people from doing the same thing to our prisoners and and believe me we went through all that thought process I did at the time um i mean it's simplistic but i mean the the threat was deemed to be such that well it, You know, Al Qaeda already you know slaughtered over three thousand Americans, innocent Americans. So it wasn't like they were going to get any worse if they captured uh, Americans or American uh, citizens. Now, whether the Iranians or the Syrians, that you know that became you know that that is that is valid that consideration. But and that was all weighed. But the the overriding consideration at the time, the paramount the paramount um, uh, objective for the entire government and the American people in Congress at the time was to stop a second attack. Basically, whatever it takes to stop a second attack, stop it. And that was the rationale that really drove the adoption of these totally unprecedented kinds of activities. I had never seen them in my 25 years there. And... uh, you know, they've clearly became increasingly controversial. They've, they're, you know, they're, the notion that they have stained Americans' image in the world, I don't... I've never I've never uh, disputed that. But I just keep harking back to the tenor of the times and why, and why it, it was deemed just absolutely essential, unavoidable, to take these kinds of extraordinary steps. So. Well, that,
0: doesn't the government have some responsibility in filtering out the hysteria of the When you think about McCarthyism you know just
1: okay we're all scared because there's communists hiding behind every little piece of furniture and then you start you start doing these things because there's a scare the next thing you know you've, you're infringing upon rights you're doing all these things oh well you know, mm. it's neat it. well this wasn't this isn't analogous to the McCarthy I scare, which I wrote my college thesis on, which was bogus and and and, and you know simple. You know, everyone knew what, what these guys had done. They they launched a sneak attack and killed three thousand Americans. So this wasn't some bogus scare or some trumped up scare. This was a real, you know, assault on 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 America in an unprecedented way. Uh, and we all, you know, you're a lot younger than I am, but you remember what it was like after 9-11. I mean, no one could believe it. There was the fear, the dread, the outrage. And, you know, now, 12 years later, you know, there was never a second attack. There was, you know, bin Laden's dead. You know, it's it's human nature to say, well, geez, look at, look at what all, you know, Look at what we lost in our, our national soul by doing that kind of thing, and couldn't we have filtered? You know, couldn't we have weighed the hysteria at the time? Well, the fact is, it was hysteria, and it was justified. I mean, we all know that because these guys were intent on doing it again. So that's what that's what led, and I don't, you know, I don't discern. I don't didn't discern at the time, or for two or three years after nine eleven, any any sort of pushback that's saying. Well, this is overreaction. By that time, the interrogation book, frankly, was leaking out, so it was still secret. But you know, there was enough to know about. But there, it was only you know, 2004, 2005, that that the pendulum swung. But before that, the notion was, whatever you, whatever needs to be done to prevent an attack, do it. You know, I always I always speculate. We can all speculate now, but I always speculate if we had, okay, we. So we did the techniques. We, did them, on, we do, do, did them on this guy, Zubaydah, Abu Zubaydah, first guy. And he still doesn't talk. And then there's a second attack. And it turns out he had the information in his head, and he tells us, well, you tried everything, even this crazy stuff, and you can not get me to talk. What do you honestly think the post-mortems would be? That the techniques were brutal? No. It would have been, was that all you guys were doing? This guy had this information in his head, and you just did this? I mean that's what it, I'm confident. That's what it would have happened. So, okay, look, I'll get back if okay. Go ahead, go ahead. You can go. Whoa. Well, he was, you know, people quibble about numbers. Believe me, he was waterboarded far more than I thought when this program was created. Anyone could withstand waterboarding. So, so, but the notion is that 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 the people at CIA sort of after eighty nine times knew he wasn't going to talk, and then just tortured him for the hell of it. Is that what? Is that the notion? Again, I understand that, but I mean, with all due respect, I respect the, you know reject the notion that CIA, and I was in there at the time would keep doing something just just to torture somebody. the The idea with with KSM who was by far the toughest and most psychopathic, but most cunning of all of them was that sooner or later he would break and start talking. Now, the irony of all this, and I, I say that, I talk about this in the book, is it wasn't the waterboarding that eventually caused him to start talking. It was sleep deprivation. Because after a while, I mean, this guy is, I mean, I, I mean in a sort of perverse way, after have to sort of admire him for his total, total cunning and tenacity and single-minded. But he figured out that he wasn't going to get waterboarded to death. But but the one thing he he couldn't take was sleep deprivation. So, I mean, that, really, that's what happened to uh, KSM. Now, you know, trying—you know—trying to parse well it was the waterboarding, did uh, sleep deprivation, or you know, one of the other one of the other techniques is hard because they're done in concert. But there's no question that he was waterboarded. First of all, only three three detainees were waterboarded over hundred in the program, so it wasn't promiscuously used. But he was waterboarded far more than anyone else. And he wound up being cooperative, or at least as cooperative as he was going to be. And as I say, the uh, he withstood far more than I would have. I would have imagined. But according to our experts, it was the uh, sleep deprivation that got him. It's crazy. I know. Sir. Yeah, um, I just
0: started your book and enjoying reading it a great deal. Uh, two questions for you there been any accurate depiction of the day-to-day goings-on at the CIA in any form of pop culture, whether it's television or movies or whatever? And the second question is, I noticed that um, you, very, the very start of your book is about uh, uh, <clears throat> the destruction of tapes and, and all this other uh, very controversial stuff, and I was wondering if that was your choice to open your book that way, or if your editor pushed you in that direction,
1: <laughs> well, let me let me answer the second part first. Yeah, my editor pushed me in that direction. I mean, I, I had never written a book before. You know, I I had like a sixth grade understanding about how you write a memoir. You start with the day you were born, right. chapter one, and just go through. And uh, and I said, uh, no, 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 we got to start off with something that people are going to relate to, that someone understands, someone can remember. So start with that chapter, and then, and then, uh, you know, the rest of the book is basically a flashback. And then near the end, they come back to the same era. So that was, I would like to say that was my literary device, but it wasn't. I mean, I was just, I was just going by the numbers. In terms of uh, popular culture, um, that's a that's a uh, that's a fascinating question. I've gotten it a lot. Um, is which which you know whether Homeland or Argo or, um, I mean everything's relative. I think Homeland, relatively speaking, is is a fairly not crazy depiction of what it's like inside the CIA. I have um, you know, I've told a number of uh, media people who have asked me that question that the Saul character, the uh, uh, Mandy Potenkin character, actually reminds me of several. Sort of old, grizzled, cynical veterans of CIA I met during my time. So that's not that was not not too bad. Argo was actually based on a a book by by you know the Ben Affleck character, um, and that was that was pretty close because I happened to be be at CIA during. I mean, I was a young lawyer, but I remember the whole Argo episode. So that that was basically told a story, in a, you know, fairly straightforward way. The end, as you recall, was a little more dramatic than the reality. Remember, they were driving. I mean, it was trying to take off the airplane, trying to take off in the rain. Well, the fact of the is, the Canadian six slipped out, you know, before anyone knew it. So, but within those literary confines, uh, it was uh, it was uh, pretty good. Um, I'll tell you one uh, one uh, upshoot of this book. Uh, It'll probably come to nothing, but the Hollywood studio has optioned the rights to the book for a television series. And you, uh, want to play the uh, I, you know, I don't, I don't. I mean, I think that um, I don't understand that word at all. But I think they see well. There's been CIA series, and there have been lawyer series. This is perfect. This is a CIA <laughs> lawyer series. I mean, I don't think their analysis goes much deeper than that. But um, look, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. They're going to base a character on me, but I'm confident that it ever makes the screen. It's it's up to the pilot script stage. Still a lot of hurdles, but if it ever makes it a screen, it will have very little to do with my book or actually what I did. But, you know, that's all right. I mean, I'm not. it's not like my, you know, it's nice if it happens sir. cotton candy, but I don't think if, if my book ever becomes a TV series, I don't think it's going to be any more realistic than probably most of the other things you've seen. Okay.
0: I was just curious about um, your sources have, um, you know, how did you uh, I and mean, what did you use did you, had you kept diaries and
1: journals no I wish I did I uh, I mean virtual all of it, honestly was based on memory um, you know I like to think I have a pretty good memory it's kind of infallible but but even you know, even way back in the, in the mid to late seventies, those those episodes I talk about early in the book, the stories. You know, I think we're all like that when you have these vivid experiences, you tend to remember them, and you tend to remember what you say to people and what people say to you. They sort of stuck in my head. Now, true for all those years at CIA, I mean, what happened in the seventies sort of got buried and buried and buried. But I found that. I mean, I couldn't have access to my CIA files. I couldn't have diaries. You can't do that with CIA. You can't, you know, take home anything. Um, Oddly enough, had I been confirmed as general counsel, it's a presidential appointment. There was an executive order. uh, It's been on the books for a long time. It basically says anyone who's a presidential appointee or a president can have access to his... Papers, government papers, after he leaves office for, quote, historic purposes. That is a nice way of saying that these are all these guys, these cabinet secretaries and presidents make all their money because they get to go go rummage into their file. Had I been confirmed, I could have done that with my files, but I wasn't, so I couldn't. So it was a matter of, you know, partly of necessity. Uh, but I did find in the research pro- process, while I relied on my memory, what I did, I had a couple very good research assistants who went back and called off the internet contemporaneous news articles about things like Iran-Contra or uh, the Alder James espionage case. And I would read those. And reading them jogged my memory, buttressed my memory about certain things. So I found that very useful. You know, I started off this book, this thing, you know, when the, the deal was I was supposed to bring it in. At about two hundred seventy-five pages, and I, when I signed the book contract, I'm thinking, I don't even know if I got enough for that. Well, the book is now three twenty, and it could have been longer. So I had turns out I had more than enough material. But I mean, that's really how I did it. Not very, no footnotes, no nothing. It's 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 uh, stories. But I mean, I the same. My memory's not infallible, but what I talk about, I I have pretty clear recollections of. Sir, every organization, of course, has a culture of the kind. The CIA is so huge that you have a very diverse group of people, of course.
0: But I, I would assume that for the CIA, as well as many other major organizations, there is something that you can call a culture. There certain personality types, you
1: can wrestle with moral questions in a certain way. I was you might be able to get up. There is no brief description, but if you would give your brief description, yeah, yeah, the CIA, yeah. Well, first of all, let me dispel one part of the CIA culture, sort of the Good Shepherd uh, uh, legacy, that the CIA people are a bunch of snooty Ivy League, you know, blue bloods, uh, skull and bones types, and they all you know, went to the right schools and all of that. I mean, that may have been true. It probably was true back when CIA was created, back in the late 40s and 50s. Um, but it certainly was not true when I joined the CIA. Uh, I mean, I happened to have gone to an Ivy League school at undergraduate. But sure didn't go one, go to one for law school. So I mean, I was, you know, I was not, I was not of that ilk. Plus, I you know I had an Italian American last name. So, but I mean, see, the, the notion that first of all, the notion that CI is made up uh, strictly of Ivy League blue bloods, uh is false. It, it 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 is a polyglot organization. People all over the country, all sorts of educational, cultural backgrounds. It really I mean it really is the face of, of America leaving aside you know for many years the fact that there was it was woefully underrepresented in in minorities uh, and that's still a problem but in terms of the culture of the CIA you know i it, it's hard to it's hard to articulate i try to get into this a little bit in the book there's something about being inside the CIA everybody who gets in the CIA gets hired in the CIA has to go through first of all this Extraordinarily rigorous and intrusive security investigation. You have to take a polygraph examination. I don't know how many of you've taken polygraphs, but it is something indescribable if you've never if you never done one. So 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 everyone who's there, and this goes from you know this goes from an administrative assistant up to CIA director. You all you all arrive. You're in there when you're inside the bubble. Finally, you have this unique and unbreakable bond that you're inside this secret club. And you get to talk about secrets with each other. Secrets you can't talk about with anyone in the outside. Uh, You know, we're all human. We're all kids once. Everyone wants to know secrets. So I found, you know, it was never expressed, but it was sort of this inchoate sense of we are all in this together. Come what may. And uh, we all have to rely on each other because... We can't talk or rely on anyone on the outside. So it, it really created this esprit de corps, which I thought was—I well, I always thought it was extraordinary. I, it may be unique in terms of federal bureaucracy. So it's a culture of secrecy that that is overriding, and has always been that way. It was my whole career, and I—you know—was before, and I assume it still is now. It's this—it's this idea that you're in on things. That, that you can't talk about. As a matter of fact, when I finally left CIA, retired from CI, you know, one thing I worried about most was I was in, happily inside this this bubble for so long. It was, I was afraid it would, you know, become addictive. And once you're outside, once you leave CIA, you are out. I mean, your clearance is end. You are, you know, you don't get to go back. And I've been happily living inside this, this bubble for so many years, you know, smugly reading newspaper accounts saying, well, that part's, you know, crap and but this part is true and now it'd just be like any regular person reading a newspaper account not knowing I mean this whole Edward Snowden thing. I don't know anything more or less than anyone else does who reads a newspaper. And I thought that would really I thought that would really disturb me. Turns out it really hasn't. I mean there's a sense of relief. But but the, it's a culture of secrecy. I think it overrides it permeates everything. Even legal questions. You know, even I don't know how many of you are lawyers, but you know, there can be some boring legal questions, administrative law, um, personnel law. But even the CIA, those otherwise mundane questions, because they all relate to something secret or some secret issue, it gives them a, a soupçon of of intrigue that they really otherwise don't deserve. So, so it's a secrecy more than anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, everything. I mean, you know, as a CI, as a CIA lawyers, um, we. I mean, the fact of the matter is, there aren't a lot of U.S. laws that apply to CIA. I mean, that's just the way it is. So it's not like you're a, a corporate lawyer, or, or you have you know court precedents to go by, or you have specific statutes. So the legal part of being a lawyer at CIA is really. You know, I spent most of my career making stuff up as I went along. The the big component, the mo the the component that's most at once the most fascinating for a lawyer and the most risky is the judging the moral, judging the moral uh, dilemma. I mean, I remember during Iran Contra. Um, I mean, what do you you know, shipping arms shipping arms to the Iranian government to free hostages. I mean, there had been a I mean, is that moral? I mean, it, it had gone against every every tenet of U.S. foreign policy for that, which is you never bargained for hostages, yet it was done. Some hostages were released, but a lot more, you know, the Iranians weren't uh, stupid. That's, as soon as they released some, they grabbed some more. But I remember there, even way back then there was this issue of morality. I mean... Remember, the, remember those poignant pictures of those guys holding the newspapers who've been in captivity for two or three years. It was heartrending. You'd want to get them out, but how do you get them out by by basically paying extortion? And I remember—I mean, I, I was ten years in my career then. That's when it really struck me the the moral issues that people in the CIA, including CIA lawyers, have to deal with. So, sure, it happens all the time. Yes, ma'am.
0: First of all. and secondly, when the, when the um, Russian empire, Russian nation, Russian fell apart, it seemed to me that everybody in the universe was surprised. Uh, was the CIA surprised? Somewhat. <laughs> Somewhat, yeah. And, and, I mean, we all whoa, you know, how did, what happened when that happened in the CIA? Was everybody saying,
1: what's wrong with you? Why didn't you figure this out? Or what was happening? Well, you know, this is this has been lost to history now because he has acquired such an aura over in recent years, but Bob Gates was the director of CIA. He was a career CIA guy and actually was an analyst and his specialty was Soviet analysis. You know, he... And I think he, in his first memoir at least, conceded that he blew it. He missed it. He didn't know it was going to happen when it happened. Now, being an analyst, you know, analysts love to go on the one hand, on the other hand. And he didn't quite say it that bluntly. But, I mean, and this is a guy now who's, you know, attained attained this titanic status with some, you know, I mean, I've worked with the guy for years, a brilliant guy. But he missed it. I mean, that was, I mean, there's no two ways about it by and large that was an intelligence failure for CIA I mean they had invested so many years so many dollars why it happened I can't tell you I mean but it was I mean there's, there's no way, two ways about it this, the first part of your question on on presidents well you'll see if you read the book I go into I go into detail about each of the presidents I I served under and their savviness or, or care or, what do you, you want to know who the best or the worst yeah <laughs> yeah well, um, you know, I, for reasons that remain unclear to me, I was allowed to stay at the CIA chief legal officer for the first year of the Obama administration. I mean, I thought it was a goner. I'd been behind the you know, the interrogation program. My name had been linked to it. I was astonished. Um, Leon Panetta, a guy who I did not know, became the first CIA director. He asked me to stay on until the White House you know, came up with a new political appointee. So I got a, a glimpse of the... Of the Obama White and the President, President Obama, he is a very smart guy. I mean, I was impressed. I mean, I saw what he was questions he was asking after his briefings. Very quick study. Now he did some things in those early months. I think were feckless and 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 kind uh, of productive. But uh, make no mistake about it, he he was he is a very bright and savvy and quick learning president. The uh, the one the other end of the spectrum is not is not that he was he was not smart, but he just didn't care about CIA. Not, I'm talking about Bill Clinton. He really did not care about CIA. I mean, he was there for, what, six years? It was only near the end, after the bin Laden started doing terrorist attacks in Africa, that Clinton turned to CIA for help. But before that, I mean, it wasn't he was hostile. He just didn't care. I mean, he didn't bring the CIA directors into any of his inner, overall office discussions. I mean, his focus was always on the economy. Um, so I found that, uh, of all the presidents, the most perplexing is, is, is apathy, lack of a better term, about intelligence, about CIA. So. Okay. I want ask you about the enhanced interrogation,
0: but wasn't CIA policy prior to 9-11? Didn't they do enhanced interrogation by surrogates of other, other states?
1: You. Yes, I think it was called Outsourcing Torture. Mm-hmm. After 9-11, there are all sorts of popular phrases in the, in the Lexus Con, Extraordinary Rendition, Outsourcing Torture, Risk Averse, Connecting the Dots. There a bunch of secret black sites. That's another one. Anyway, outsour- you're talking about Outsourcing yeah. Torture. Well, I mean, I suppose you don't necessarily have to take me on my word on this, but it was not. It was never a CIA policy to sort of turn detainees over to over to foreign governments for the purpose of so these guys could beat the hell out of the detainees and CIA could look the other way. Um, I mean, clearly, CIA deter- you know, detained and turned over to to I mean, you know, Egypt and Mubarak era. I mean, brutal authoritarian regimes. But, you know, the other, one of the other points I you know, I've tried to make in this book was that, you know, CIA people are not stupid. They're not masochistic. First of all, even if they were inclined to do that, what I found out over and over again during my CIA career is that when you do something wrong, you're going to get found out. You're going to get found out. You're gonna, It's going to leak. And so just purely out of self-protection, there's no percentage in doing something like that. Now, the reality was when CIA, and they did this before 9-11, they did this during the clinton administration these renditions and the obama administration carefully carefully preserved the right of the, of the us government to conduct renditions uh i couldn't quite say the word rendition in an executive order so they called it a short-term transfer that was one of my early acts for the obama administration but but the fact is with with, with renditions what what you know happens is that CI CIA turns these guys over. You know, sometimes they're home countries, usually they're home countries, sometimes to a third country. But the notion is they, the chief of station goes to the head of the intelligence service and says, "You know, we're turning them over to you. This is before 9-11. We, you know, we'd never detained people ourselves before 9-11. That, uh, that we want information, we want access to this guy, but you are not to, you are not to abuse him, violate his human rights. And you know, at this point people would say, Well yeah, it was sort of a wink and a nod, they have to sort of say that. But the fact of the matter is they did say it and they tried to get credible guarantees and they would check back. They would they would you know, sometimes it's through a unilateral penetration of the foreign government who could tell us whether the guy was getting when we were in around. So all of that was done. I'm telling you, it was done. If out of self protection, if nothing else. Um now, was it a fail safe system? No. No. There were times where CIA turned over detain- uh, its people, uh, detainees, to foreign governments who, who did get abused. So it did happen. But I think I think it. the policy largely worked, from my observation, because it had teeth. Because if a foreign government abused a detainee against our direction, then, then with uh, there are you know at least four cases where CIA suspended or cut off aid to that foreign intelligence service, and believe me, foreign intelligence services in the third world especially are utterly dependent on CIA at large. S. So, so it does have teeth. Anyway, that's a long answer, but yes, ma'am.
0: like an overarching thing obviously there are individual projects that have certain yeah, projects, yeah but is there an overarching one and did you feel like you were a part of that did you have your own personal objective your personal vision of like
1: what you were doing what it was a part of um, was that in line with the, with the agency that you know yeah I get you I get you no I thought about that Um, I mean you know I joined 1976 it was it was so so, I worked in the place for fifteen years. It was still the Cold War, still the Cold War era. It started long before I got there, but that was palpable. It was always the Soviets, Soviet expansionism. You know the danger in Africa and Central America, all of that. So that was sort of the driving principle. Then the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, and CIA predictably had this identity crisis. So what do we do now? There are no, you know, there's no more, no more Soviet Union. And and the agency did flounder for, for a few years in the 90s. Uh, and it was only, I mean, it was only, really, honestly, with the rise of bin Laden that I think the agency found its mission again, which the overall mission from the Soviet Union days, Cold war days, to the terrorism days is protect the country, protect the national security. It's something as simple, simple as that. Now clearly, over the years, CIA had some a lot of misadventures where they did what they shouldn't have done or got into things they should not have gotten into it turned turned uh, turned sour but I think, I think the, the guiding principle, the beacon over those years was you know we are here to protect the country, and of course, after 9/11 that became i mean ever more ever more uh, uh, paramount. And I think, I, you know, in my own way, I mean, honestly, when I joined the CIA, I thought it was kind of going to be a cool place to work. I didn't, you know, I didn't have a messianic mission or Maybe I should have, but, but, uh, but at the end of the day, when I finally had, had time to reflect after I retired about what, you know, what was it all about for 34 years, I think I remember it's the same thing, you know, protecting, protecting uh, the country, doing your, doing your small part every day to try to do that in one way or another. <laughs>
0: okay. yeah. as you say the U.S. laws many don't not the main U.S. laws apply to the CIA directly but what about the, the law against conspiracy and murder what about President Obama ordering the death of a U.S.
1: citizen overseas without tr- being tried in their jury in the court? <clears throat> how, is, how is that legal well you know I will try to answer that, but first, my caveat is I was long gone uh, by the time President Obama. What about President Clinton?
0: Did he order the death of uh, Bin Laden before he was in
1: office? Well, actually, he did. I mean, he did. Uh, now, I mean, you know, he after nine eleven, he's you know, Mr. Clinton said, you know, I had issued clear orders to kill Bin Laden. Well, it's not being Bill Clinton. It's a little more. Nuance to that. I mean, he issued orders, but it was like nuanced if you can't take them alive or if capture isn't feasible. It was like, you know, what the definition of is is. I mean, that was the kind of... But he did. I mean, his own way. And he, you know, he he came out and said it. Um, you yeah, know, conspiracy and murder. Murder is a crime. Asa- actually, assassination is a crime. Uh, assassination is forbidden by the executive order. But, I mean, I could get in the weeds about... about, about UN and but but the issue of preemptive self defense, if someone's basically said if some foreign guy's trying to kill you, you kill him first. And that's and that's defensible. And every administration, Republican and Democrat, uh has supported that. You know, I, one of the many I mean chief irony about all the post nine eleven years was all those years where the interrogation program was getting, becoming more controversial and people were, you know, all of this was coming coming out. And <clears throat> at the same time, you know, the drone program started at the same time the interrogation program started, 2002. And people were getting killed. I mean, you know, it was for the world to see. People were getting blown to bits on the ground, bad guys. Uh, sometimes innocent bystanders, women and children with them. But, I mean, we think about it. It was only maybe 2010, 2011, after the interrogation program was long gone, and the Obama administration basically ratcheted up the drone program, was the first hint of any dissent or objection from the human rights community, from the Congress. And all this time, I mean, the interrogation program. I mean, I, the lesson for me was, I mean, apparently it is considered more morally justifiable and legally defensible to, no question about it, brutally interrogate somebody. Than it is to kill them, and I always find that ironic, frankly, that because I was living in all those years, and I kept waiting. When's people going to start yelling about the drone program? Uh, it never happened. So you might want, you know, it's worth pondering. Okay, well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. It's a very good question.